0: Buddhist geeks discover the emerging face of Buddhism. Episode 201, Pragmatic Buddhism. We're joined this week by Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod to explore his contemporary rendering of Tibetan Buddhism. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with a very awesome guest, Ken McLeod. Ken, thank you again for taking the time to speak with the geeks. You're already an honorary geek, and we haven't even interviewed you, so that's a pretty big deal. What is
1: an honorary geek? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think you know. I don't think I have to tell you that. You, uh, you've you definitely been one of the main Buddhist geeks in the West to bring Tibetan Buddhism here. And you've been a translator and an author and a teacher and you've been carrying all these roles. So that's kind of what in our minds makes you a Buddhist geek, an honorary one. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a great honor to have you here. And just a little bit of biographical info for the people that may not be that familiar with your work. You started meditating 1970 with Venerable Kala Rinpoche. He's one of the first Tibetan teachers to take on Western students, I understand, or at least the first one that did the three-year retreat with Western students. One of my teachers at Naropa, Sarah Harding, she told me that you guys were on the first three-year retreat that he did for
1: Westerners. Is that true? Yes, that's right. Sarah's an old friend and colleague, yeah.
0: Yeah, I was just imagining what it'd be like to have gone through something like that with other people. Three year, three month, three week, three day, three hour, whatever, retreat. Uh, That must be pretty incredible.
1: (laughs) Well, yes, it's a combination of boarding school, prison, and seminary.
0: Sounds lovely. Well, you did do this quite a long time ago, so I guess you have now some perspective on it, huh?
1: Well, yes, uh, very definitely. I I did the retreat in, uh, actually, I did two three-year retreats.
0: Oh, did you do like back-to-back
1: type things? Pretty well, yes. Uh, So, that was 1976 to 1983. Wow, okay. So, that gives a sense kind of of your deep practice
0: background, and then um, you've been teaching now for 30, 40 years, and you're current teaching is happening through an organization called unfettered mind
1: yeah it's more like 25 years don't don't, don't make me too old okay (laughs) so about 25 years you've been teaching impermanence wreaks enough damage it is (laughs) don't speed it up
0: so you 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 weren't actually teaching while you were in the three-year retreat okay check
1: oh no actually i was come to think that i taught a a lot in the second three-year retreat okay because the retreat director at that point Went to India to attend a series of empowerments that Kalarambashi was giving, so I ended up uh, giving quite a lot of instruction over the last two years of the three-year retreat. Wow, cool!
0: And speaking of unfettered mind, this is the organization that you started to kind of do your meditation instruction and programs and guidance in Buddhist practice. And it's really striking when I go to the site. The tagline is pragmatic Buddhism. And I really, really enjoyed that. And I know one of your main aims with Unfettered Mind is to kind of communicate the essence of Buddhism using, as you say, Western language, frameworks, context, models. And I wanted to ask, since you have such a rich traditional practice background, when that shift became important or necessary in how you were conveying things? Well, that's
1: a good question. Even during the three-year retreat, I certainly became aware that of tensions between modes of practice that had been developed in ancient and medieval India and carried for a thousand years or so in Tibetan culture, which was a medieval culture at best, and then coming from a Western, modern, post-industrial society and so forth... And and part of what made me uh, question things is that while I could appreciate and did appreciate very, very much how the traditional practices worked, certainly when I I left retreat, I found myself in a uh, quite severe cultural shock, having spent seven years in basically a traditional Tibetan setting. Then uh, Rinpoche, and his wisdom, sent me to Los Angeles. <laughs> so I went from an extremely secluded environment in, in central France where we had no visitors whatsoever and no opportunity to buy or shop or drive or anything like that to a uh, Los Angeles, which is very much a post-industrial city and a very large one at that. So I had to figure out how to work and how to function in in this environment. And I, I became aware that a lot of people idealized a Buddhist practice, thinking it was going to save them in some way from the vicissitudes of life. And that's not exactly what happens with Buddhist practice. It gives you, at least in the way that I look at it, it gives you the ways and means of meeting the vicissitudes of life. And in fact, one of the things I did was to adapt a quotation from... Uh, Uh, Miyamoto Musashi, one of probably Japan's greatest swordsmen, he says this about martial arts, and I just substituted Buddhism. Buddhism is a way of freedom. Many people, when studying this way, may think that the skills one develops will not be useful in real situations. The true way of Buddha is to train so that these skills are useful at any time and to teach these skills so that they will be useful in all things. So... Very soon after I moved to Los Angeles, I was quite concerned with, how do you actually live this? Not in any kind of theoretical or idealistic way, but what does it actually look like in your life? And two or three years after I came here, that's when I laid the foundation for Unfettered Mind, and I just chose Pragmatic Buddhism, as opposed, you might say, to Romantic Buddhism or other forms of Buddhism.
0: <laughs> hmm, that's so interesting. Interesting. And I was wondering, connected with this, because you were mentioning the three year retreat, how do you feel now about that particular traditional form
1: coming from this pragmatic Buddhist angle? You started off the question by talking about the essence of Buddhism. To me, that's a, a particularly Western notion. Yeah, for sure. A very uh, modern uh, notion. The, the idea that things have an essence. <laughs> hmm Mm-hmm. And the implications of that In some ways, I've really only been appreciating relatively recently. You may be aware that in the mid-80s, the Shambhala publications published a translation I did of the mind training in seven points under the title, The Great Path of Awakening. Well, if I were to do that again now, I would, without hesitation, insist that the title be A Great Path of Awakening, not THE Great Path of Awakening. And that may seem like a minor difference, but I think it makes a huge one because one of the ways I see all religions now is that religions are very, very long-term conversations about certain questions. This is a perspective I've got from a guy called James Kars, who's a retired professor of religion and theology from New York University, The questions in Buddhism, just to say what the essence of Buddhism, I'd say the essence of Buddhism is this conversation which we participate in our lives about the basic questions about suffering, about how do we live in our lives in the face of birth, old age, illness and death, the major sufferings that uh, Buddhism uh, talks about. And when you frame it that way, it immediately becomes very pragmatic. (laughs) And so... In a certain way, I guess,
0: there are certain ways in which the pragmatism of this context and this culture, and like you're saying, post-industrial L.A., for instance, is going to be a lot different than in medieval Tibet. And I wondered, how are some of the specific ways that you found you are translating or reinterpreting or reimagining even to Buddhist practices and Buddhist teachings in this context, as opposed to the way it may have been taught in medieval Traditional Asian context?
1: Well, I think it's helpful to look at things in terms of evolution. Mm-hmm. Buddhism evolved in India. It started off as a renunciate tradition, similar to the uh, Shivite traditions that people still join and adhere to and practice in the Kumbh Mela and things like that. You watch those things and it feels like you're watching what Buddhism was like a couple of thousand years ago. And it evolved into a very rich cultural and religious and philosophical tradition in medieval India. And basically became part of the whole Indian complex and, and ceased to be distinguishable from Hinduism. But in the course of that, it migrated to other countries like Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia, and Tibet, China, Japan and so forth. And evolved in very, very different ways in each of those cultures. Now that it's come to America and Europe and South America and Africa and other places, it continues to evolve. And in this process, there will always be people who practice very close to the, or as close as they're able to, to the forms that were practiced in, say, the Asian countries. And then there will be other people who seek to adapt and make innovations That they deem more suitable to the present situation. That's what sparks the process of evolution. And there's always a tension there. But from the perspective I see now, all of that is going on. There isn't any one right form. Michael Mead said, there isn't a question of American Buddhism. It's more a question of American Buddhisms. The plural. Mm. (laughs) So, some of the things that I've paid close attention to, one was, after teaching for a few years, I realized Mm. that people struggled with problems in their practice which could be taken care of in a very, very short conversation. Sometimes they would struggled for six months or a year before I'd become aware that they were having these problems. So one of the things that I started to do after a couple of years was to institute a mechanism by which I was getting feedback from the students about what was happening in their practice and I would have frequent meetings in retreats, for instance, whenever possible, I interview every student every day about their practice. That's something that doesn't happen in in most retreats, except for the Zen tradition, which is very different, particularly Rinzai Zen. And in this way, people find that they are able to make incremental refinements in their practice, so they don't stay stuck on stuff for a very long time. There are, pros and cons to this. One, I think it helps people refine their practice in a way that's more suitable to them more quickly. On the other hand, they don't necessarily have the experience of struggling with something and finding their own way, though I think there's enough of that that goes on that that's not completely lost. Another thing that has been very important to me is to refine my own ability to translate and really put things into contemporary English. This is not so much so important necessarily for scholastic translations, but I really think for translations for which people are going to use in their practice, they should be able to read the prayers and verses and so forth and not have the feeling they're reading something that was once in a foreign language. It should speak to them in English and it enables them to relate to the material emotionally and to understand it transparently in a way that it really becomes alive. And so that's something that's really important. Another thing that I've done is to emphasize the role of power in practice. I find that people, and this may be part of the Asian inheritance, but they are often loath or seem hesitant to ask questions which are vitally important to them in their practice and just wait for the answer to come sometime, and that may take years. So I encourage people to ask questions at every point in their practice and make it their responsibility to make sure that they understand the practice in a way that works for them. And the fourth area, I guess, is the... uh, Because I've seen this just be so destructive, is to remove the tension, or to do what I can to remove the tension between life and practice. In many Buddhist traditions, you get the feeling that you're only really alive if you're meditating, and your life is only meaningful if you're in retreat. Mm. And, and, and these are very natural ideas to have, given that Buddhism is very, very firmly part of the Indian renunciate tradition. But that's probably not the form that Buddhism is going to take, or it's not going to be the only form Buddhism takes in the West. There are retreat facilities and monastic facilities that are being developed, and have been developed, and are continuing to develop. And that will carry on the renunciate tradition, but a very, very large contingent of practitioners in this country live lives like you and me. We are right in the world. And that's where I come back to Musashi's quote, how do you actually live this? So many people have said to me, well, if only I could spend more time in retreat. And In a certain sense, I want to go back to how the Greeks approached life before Socrates came into the picture, And that was, they didn't split religion and philosophy. It was very much, how do I live, to use uh, John kabat phrase, in the full catastrophe? Wife, children, husband, work, etc. How do you actually live in this life in the way that you want? And the answer to that, from my perspective, is to find a way of experiencing life so that you aren't struggling with your experience of life. And I think Buddhism provides some extraordinarily wonderful and powerful tools to bring that about.
0: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice.